We'll be, uh, as Matthew says, we'll be reading from Genesis, Genesis chapter 17, Genesis chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you, Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Thus ends God's word. 
Amen. Church, it's good to be back in Genesis. I was so thankful that uh, Quinn, as part of our Youth Sunday, was able to, to preach last weekend. Did you all enjoy hearing from Quinn? Yeah, I'm so thankful for that. And he's not here today. He's traveling again, so I can't encourage him publicly. But I, I really do want us to be a church that's faithful to raise up and train and give opportunity to people that are learning to preach God's word. You know, we, we shouldn't come on Sunday expecting, give me, give me a stellar performance that will make me want to come back. Right? We, we want to be a church that does what? That equips one another for the works of ministry God's called us to. And that means that this pulpit is not a performance pulpit. This pulpit in many Sundays will be a training pulpit. No less than all of us are in training. So, Quinn did a fantastic job, and I'm eager for him to keep growing in his gift. I look around this room, and, and I see gray hair of various kinds, and types. And it reminds me, even as I find my own gray hairs in the mirror, of what the world tells us as we age. And what the world says to us as the years begin to pile up. And, and I think it says this more than anything else in some ways. When old age sets in, it's time to retire. It's time to rest. After, after three or four decades of work, it's really time to, to kick back. To take it easy and, and relax. Throw the car into neutral, just kind of ride it into the sunset. What, what, what do you think God has to say about that? You, you think God has something to say about that? Yeah, he does. Absolutely he does. On the one hand, rest is what? It's a good thing, right? God rested. He's not going to do something that's not good. Bad things happen if we don't follow his example in resting. On the other hand, we never get to take a break from the hard work of following Jesus. Right? God never gives us a break from that. Jesus didn't say, take up your cross and follow me until you turn 65 and then you can set it back down. No, what did he say? Take up your cross and follow me and keep on following me until the day you die. Till the day I take you home, I, I want you, I created you, I've saved you, and I've empowered you to follow me and not stop. And that means, church, we never reach an age where God permits us to shift our spiritual lives into neutral. Never. We never get to stop fighting our sin loving our Savior, and, and growing more and more into his image. God, God doesn't give us a retirement plan from the life of faith, the life of obedience. If anything, I would argue that, that the intensity of the spiritual battle increases the older you get. Why do I say that? Well, for a variety of reasons, including the fact that as age increases, so do lifelong habits of sin, <laughs> They get more entrenched. They get harder to fight. And we keep adding pages, do we not, to our, our personal catalog of suffering and sorrow and, and the bodies that we, we labor to love God with and love people with. They, they get frail. They weaken. They fall apart. We, we, we need the Lord more, not less, as we age. We, we need to fight to follow the Lord harder as age increases, not throw it into neutral. And many times, if Abram's example is any indicator, God saves his most significant spiritual work for the latter years of life. I wonder if you believe that. You know, Abram didn't first encounter God until he was 75 years old. Genesis 12. And over the next 10 years, he, he experienced God's promises, God's provision in some incredible ways. And, and just time after time, once you start reading in Genesis 12, all the way up to Genesis 17, you just see God again and again showing Abram, Abram, I'm worthy of your trust. I'm worthy of your obedience, buddy. 
He promises to make his, his name great. He promises in Genesis 12 to give him a son, offspring. He initiates or cuts a covenant with him then in Genesis 15 where he swears to keep his word to Abram. Even if it cost him his own life. But when Abram is roughly 85, you know what happens? He gets tired of waiting for God. Maybe some of you who are older can relate to that. Tired of waiting for God to make good on his promises. And he violates God's design for marriage and conceives a son with Sarai's servant, Hagar. And the entire episode, if you go back and read Genesis 16, is one great example of unbelief and, and the inevitable sorrows that come from trying to create blessing for ourselves instead of trusting God to provide. That never works. And by the time Genesis 17 opens, if you look at verse 1, Abram is 99 years old. It's been at least 13 years, if not longer, since he heard anything from the Lord. I mean, imagine that. We gather what? Every Sunday. Sometimes we miss Sundays, but, but typically, week after week, God's speaking to us, right? Through his word. Imagine more than 13 years going by. You haven't heard anything from God. And I can only wonder what was going through his mind, you know? Has God forgotten me? Was this little thing I got onto with Hagar, has that disqualified me? What, what's happened to all the promises God's made? I'm still waiting, Lord, and I'm not getting any younger. So look at verse one. Because in the midst of all that, God breaks in, church. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Just stop there. Stop there. Whether you are 19 or 99, I want you to listen to me right now. Because there's something you need to know, something you need to understand, something you need to remember and not forget again and again and again. And that's this. There is an almighty God seated in heaven who is ruling and moving all things according to the perfect counsel of his omnipotent will. You need to hear that again and again and again. You need the word of God Almighty to confront you with the reality of God Almighty because it is that twofold reality, namely one, that God exists and two, that he is almighty that makes all the difference in every area of your life. Your greatest need, friend, in this regard, is not relief from sorrow even as you age. Your greatest need is to see and savor the power and beauty of Almighty God. And absolutely everything else in this entire chapter flows from that declaration. That's the headwaters, that's the spring. If God isn't Almighty, none of the rest of this goes down. But because God is almighty, he's real and he's all powerful, all of this goes down. Remember that the Lord declares to you, I am God almighty for you right now in the midst of whatever you're going through. So, so what does God almighty say to this seasoned saint? Look back at verse one, one and two here. This 99 year old man who has a covenant relationship with the Lord of the universe. What's he say? Abram, walk before me and be blameless. Translation, Abram, obey me. Follow me. I know your situation, buddy. I know your temptations. And there's one thing I require from you. I require, I demand that you follow and obey me. I want you to think, I want you to feel, I want you to act in light of the reality of my presence. I want you to live quorum Deo before my face. I want you to do everything you do and think everything you think, every action that you take in light of the fact that I am right here with you. That's what I want from you, buddy. 
follow me. Let me call the shots in your life. Follow me as a sheep follows their shepherd and, and, and be blameless, Abram. Be holy as I'm holy. Don't, don't ask Abram, what am I not allowed to do? Give me the list. Or how far is going too far? No, Abram, I want you to ask this. How can I, through my thoughts and my words and my actions, show the entire world how good and righteous and great I am? That's what I want from you, bud. Don't try to fit in with the crowd. Follow me. Give, give me your wholehearted devotion, Abram, in every area of life. Not because your parents say you should or your wife says you should. No, look at verse two. Why should, you, why should he do this? Look at verse two. So that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. In other words, Abram, Listen up, okay? Listen up. In Genesis 15, I entered a covenant relationship with you. And that's a relationship I started not because you were righteous, but because I am gracious. And I promised you a multitude of offspring. I promised you a land for them to dwell in, okay? And you chose to believe me, Abram. You trusted my word and I, I counted your faith in me as, as righteousness. But Abram, the, the covenant blessings I've promised you, they are not going to come to pass in your life unless you are willing to obey me, to follow me. And your obedience is, is so important, so critical, so one with faith and inseparable from faith that if you're unwilling to obey me, I will not establish my covenant between me and you and multiply you greatly. Look back at verse two. That that, at the very beginning, friends, is not hypothetical. That's a real condition. In all the covenant relationships that God makes with his people, in all the, the promise-based relationships that God establishes with his people all throughout the Bible, there are always two things. There are unconditional elements and there are conditional elements. Okay, that there's an unconditional declaration of, of who God is and what he's doing. Okay, that's why the Lord never speaks about our covenant when he's talking to Abram, right? It's my covenant, it's my covenant. It's, it's my covenant because it's initiated by my grace, Abram, and it's sustained by my grace. That's the unconditional element. But, but there's a conditional invitation right next to that for Abram to respond to God's promises with obedient faith. They're both there. And the invitation comes into clear view in chapter 17. God's gracious promise to Abram required an obedient response from Abram. Why? Because it's only those who are faithful to keep God's covenant who will experience God's blessings. That's why. Only those who are faithful to keep God's covenant experience God's blessings. That's the main point of this entire chapter. We, we could just preach verse two and stop because that's the point. It's both a word of warning if you want to experience God's blessings, you must keep his covenant. And it's a word of encouragement, right? If you keep God's covenant, you will not fail to experience God's blessings. So think of it this way. Every blessing God holds out to us makes a claim on our life. Okay? It doesn't just exist floating around. Every blessing God holds out to us, makes a claim on our life. His blessings aren't passive, they're active. They, they come to us in the form of covenant promises that are designed to draw out of us a response of obedient faith. They're designed as promises to produce and accomplish something in our life. They're not passive, they're active. And that's just as true for us today as it was for Abram in Genesis 17. And I think the entire remainder of this chapter gives us several ways that's the case. How are God's promises, his covenant promises, at work, active in our life? Here's the first one. 
God's covenant promises determine our identity. Look at verse four. They determine our identity. Okay, Abram falls on his face in reverent awe and God says what to him? Verse four. Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. A quick review. What did God promise Abram back in Genesis 12? He he promised to make him a great nation, right? And then in Genesis 15, where he officially ratifies his covenant, he doubles down on his promise by saying, Abram, you're gonna be a great nation because I'm gonna give you offspring as numerous as the stars of the heaven. That's how we're gonna get to the great nation thing. And then in Genesis 17, he expands that promise even further when he says, Abram, When I say I'm going to make you a great nation, I'm not just talking about one really big nation. I'm talking about a multitude of nations. I'm going to work in you and through your offspring to mediate blessing and favor to every tribe and every tongue and every language. That's what God's saying to him here. And then he says this, Abram, check this out. Check this out, buddy. My promises are so completely determinative, so utterly decisive and in control of the future course of your life that I'm going to change your name because of it. You used to be called Abram or exalted father. Now you're going to be called Abraham or father of a multitude. Notice that, friend, the covenant promises of God. They didn't just alter Abram's life or tweak his life. They redefined his life. They gave him a new identity, who he was. That's what a name represented in the Old Testament. Who you are and your destiny, who Abram was, his very identity was radically transformed when his life collided with the covenant promises of God. You think that's changed? (laughs) It hasn't changed. Why? Because Jesus Christ, the son of God in human flesh, does the exact same work in us today, does he not? Jesus didn't live and die and rise from the grave to improve your life or to tweak your life or to modify your life or give you your best life now. He came to give you new life give you a new identity, an identity not defined by the, the size of your paycheck or the, the degrees on the wall or the behavior of your kids, but by a brand new relationship with the Lord of the universe. That's a new identity, a new relationship defined by a new name. And it's what God promised to do in Isaiah 62. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you, the people of God, shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You know what your new name is, Christian? 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And so you are. If you're a Christian, there are all kinds of things that other people may call you, for better or worse. All kinds of ways you may name yourself, define yourself, fill in the I am whatever blank in your own mind. If you're in Christ, you know how God fills that blank in every single day of your life. You are son. You are my daughter. That's who you are. Not, not just who you might be, who I hope you become, who one day I'll surprise you and give you that. You are that right now in Christ. Child of God. And that's not just a slogan for t-shirts in a Christian bookstore, friends. That's, that's gloriously and eternally true. If you're a Christian, it's not your sins that define your identity. It's not your weaknesses that define your identity. It's the name that God has given you and spoken over you in Christ that defines your identity. You're his son. You're his daughter. His covenant promises, they they determine our identity. 
They, they transform the core of who we are. That, that's why God changed Abram's name. And notice when he changed his name, he wasn't just giving the guy kind of a promise of new potential. Okay, it wasn't as though God says, hey, Abram, I'm gonna give you a new name and I want you to say it over and over and over again and keep speaking life to yourself in some mystical way until you suddenly become what I've made you to be. We can think like that. This isn't mysticism. This isn't incantation. It's not son of God, son of God, son of God. Whoa! Absolutely not. It's not a promise of potential. It's a promise of a guaranteed future. Why? Because it's a future that God himself promises he will bring to pass in Abram's life. Look at verse six. This is just crystal clear. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. Look at verse seven. I will establish my covenant. Verse eight, I will give to you and to your offspring. I will be your God. I will be their God. I hope you realize, friend, that God didn't just pull those promises out of a hat on Abram. You know, it wasn't like he was kind of playing heavenly lottery with Abram's numbers and what do we have here? Oh, Abram, look, ball number one says exceedingly fruitful. And ball number two says king shall come from you. Congratulations, Abram. No, those two promises, exceedingly fruitful, king shall come from you. Do you know what that's an allusion to, a reference back to? Pretty much something as important as the basic mission God's given every human being on earth. What? Genesis 1.28, right? What did God say? What did God say to Adam and Eve, first man and woman? Fill the earth and subdue it. Multiply and rule on my behalf. So, so what's he promising Abram? He's saying, Abram, I'm going to so work in your life that I cause you, I equip you, I empower and enable you, buddy, to become the very thing I created you to be. And not just you in some unique way, but but you as a representative of the entire human race. Another Adam. God isn't like some kind of America's got talent judge, friend, who's looking for people who can do cool things for him. He's God Almighty. And that means he's eager to apply his power and deploy his power in your life such that you and I, because of his power, become exactly who he's made us to be. That's his work. He transforms us. The new name God gives all who come to Christ by faith isn't just new potential. It's a guaranteed future. That's the first way these covenant promises, they, they change us, they transform us. Here's the second Second way they're active in our life. Point number two, God's covenant promises demand our obedience. So they define our identity. Second, they demand our obedience. Look, look at verse nine. After promising to establish his eternal covenant with Abraham, the Lord gives Abraham a sign of the covenant. Verse nine, and God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep. Notice that. It's his God's covenant, but Abraham is to keep it. Between me and you and your offspring after you, every male among you shall be circumcised. I was really thankful that we didn't have a bunch of middle school boys in the room laughing when this scripture was read earlier. <laughs> but I think because the whole sign of circumcision is often misunderstood, and yet this is the very first time that it appears in God's word. We do want to linger here a little bit and just understand why, why is this so important? What's going on here? Let me make a couple points. Okay, first, circumcision was an appropriate sign for this covenant. Appropriate, you're thinking, I don't know if I would have picked that. <laughs> it's kind of making me squirm. Well, let me explain, okay? The, the promise of human offspring lay at the core of all the covenant promises God made Abram, right? So through human reproduction, God would fulfill his promise through Abraham. And, and through human reproduction, 
his entire household, not to mention all of us, fulfill God's original command to fill and subdue the earth. Thus, it's entirely appropriate that the sign of this covenant would mark an organ of human reproduction. It's an appropriate sign. Okay, second, circumcision was a representative sign. Appropriate representative, keeping God's covenant, the the obedience that God required of Abraham and, and demanded from Abraham, in response to the promises he made Abraham, that obedience consisted of far more than just getting circumcised. Okay, let's be clear about that because it's representative. Keeping covenant meant what? He says that again and again to Abraham. Keep my covenant. What's that mean? Well, back up to verse two. It means walking before me and being blameless. That's what it means. In other words, notice this. Circumcision was a representative sign in that it was designed to express a heart of total submission to the Lord and following him in every area of life. So it was appropriate, it was representative. And third, this is really important church, circumcision circumcision was an outward sign. It was an outward sign. Why do I say that? Because as an outward sign, it had absolutely no power to affect the internal reality that it signified. What do I mean by that? Think carefully here, okay? Think carefully. The outward act of circumcision did not guarantee that a circumcised individual would actually follow the Lord in every area of life. You want proof of that? Just kind of read the rest of the Old Testament. (laughs) It was designed to express a heart of obedience, right? Representative. But it couldn't create a desire to obey. So it marked the body. It it reminded the man, and in a representative way, his entire household of their responsibility to be faithful to keep God's covenant. But it had no power to actually make him faithful. And that's a problem. Why? Because it's covenant faithfulness, wholehearted obedience that God's been after all along, right? From Abram, all the way back to Noah, back to Adam. He's after faithfulness. Walk before me, be blameless. That's not new. That's God's original plan. So what does God promise he's gonna do for Abraham's descendants? The people of Israel, Deuteronomy 30, verse six. And the Lord your God will circumcise Notice that. And the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. So you have, you have an expectation, you have a hope in God, a desperate cry, sustained throughout the, all the prophets in the Old Testament, that one day God's going to make this outward sign an inward reality. One day. And that is exactly what God has done through the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's taken the outward sign, he's made it an inward reality. Romans 2, verse 28. For no one is a Jew, think member of the people of God, who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. Okay, in other words, circumcision of the body under the old covenant with Abraham, that's fulfilled in circumcision of the heart through the new covenant in Christ. So, how does God circumcise our hearts? If you haven't grown up in church or come on a Sunday before, you're thinking, I was kind of wigged out when you went on this whole circumcision thing. I didn't, knew I didn't want to be here. Now you're talking about circumcising my heart. Okay, I'm just, forget you. <laughs> well, I get that. So, so how does God circumcise our hearts? What's going on with that? Well, he does that through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how he does it. Okay, it's, it's the Spirit that Christ Jesus pours out on his people today that works in us to help us see the evil of our sin and our need for Jesus in the first place. 
That's the Spirit, okay? It's the Spirit that gives us a new desire to stop trusting sin to give us life and start trusting Jesus to give us life. It's the Spirit that changes our hearts so that we hate the sin we once loved and we love the righteousness we once hated. The Spirit does those things and and there's no power for obedience. There's no wholehearted following of God's commands unless God in his great mercy, the risen Christ sees fit to pour out his Holy Spirit into our hearts and give us that power to obey. This may be new to you, but God doesn't help those who help himself, themselves. He just doesn't. God helps those who despair of helping themselves and who cry out to him to pour out his Holy Spirit to do in us what we cannot do in ourselves. There's no power without that. That's what you need God to do for you more than anything else. You need God to change your heart and consecrate it for himself. Because only if he does that, only when he does that, will you be able to what? Keep God's covenant and therefore receive God's blessings. Okay, look at verse 14. God couldn't be clearer here. There's two choices. Verse 14. Either we keep God's covenant and experience his blessings or we break God's covenant and are cut off from his people. Two choices. That means that Abraham's willingness to obey and follow God, no less than our own willingness to obey and follow God, could not be more important. It's critical. that creates a dilemma, does it not? Creates a dilemma. And I hope you're feeling that with me. What's the dilemma, Matthew? Well, the dilemma is that in order to experience God's blessings, we have to faithfully what? Keep God's covenant. In order to experience God's blessings, only those who keep God's covenant will experience God's blessings. And with that requirement, that demand of obedience in response to God's covenant promises, a tension arises. Will Abram's offspring be the obedient son God requires? And that is really important because it's through Abraham's offspring that God says, I'm going to mediate blessing to the entire world. And so you get to this part in Genesis 17, particularly after God tells Abraham that he must be circumcised, he must faithfully keep covenant, and immediately it just screams with this question, Lord, is he going to be able to do that? Is he going to faithfully obey you? Will his offspring keep the terms of the covenant or not? And, And the overwhelming conclusion of the entire rest of the Old Testament is it's not an open question. They can't. They don't. And nor do you or me. We can't perfectly obey. We can't perfectly keep covenant. And yet God promised on the penalty of his own death back in Genesis 15 to fulfill his covenant with Abraham and through Abraham to bring blessing to all the nations of the earth. But God fulfilling that covenant, as he makes clear to Abraham right here in chapter 17, requires what? A faithful covenant partner who obeys. That's the only way blessing can come to pass. So what does God do? Friends, he becomes the faithful covenant partner. God becomes the faithful covenant partner. He he becomes a man like us. The son of God became a son of man, and as the son of man, he what? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Remember, what, what was God, what's God been looking for from the very beginning of this whole story? He's been looking for an obedient son, a faithful son, in whom and through whom all the nations of the earth could experience his blessing. And 
Brothers and sisters, that is precisely what King Jesus has provided for us through the person and work of Christ. A faithful son, an obedient son. Why? Because Jesus didn't just come and die for you. You know what else he did for you? He obeyed for you. He obeyed for you. And we don't talk about that or sing about that often enough. He obeyed for you. And that means that when we come to Jesus, when we repent of our sins and and we trust him to forgive our sins, what happens? Well, he fills us with his spirit and he empowers us to walk before God and be blameless. And by blameless, I don't mean perfect obedience. I mean wholehearted obedience in every area of life. No exceptions. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Colossians 1 verse 10, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. What does that sound like? Abraham, walk before me. It's not new. God God calls his people to the obedience of faith from the beginning of the Old Testament. God is still calling us to the obedience of faith today through Jesus Christ. But what do we have now that they didn't have then? Power to obey. Holy Spirit, God himself, living in you and animating you and changing your desires and equipping you to make Christ your treasure. Jesus frees and commands us to strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Because it's through the spirit he gives that he equips us to obey all of God's commands. Listen, not because we are trying to earn God's covenant blessing but because we want to experience all the covenant blessings that God has freely poured out on us in Christ. So I want you to listen very carefully to me here. I'm going to try to summarize this. There's a lot of confusion on these issues here. Listen carefully. The gospel doesn't change the fact that only those who keep God's covenant will experience God's blessings. The gospel doesn't change that. The gospel tells us that Jesus has kept God's covenant for us and that we express our faith in him by joining Christ in faithfully obeying all of God's commands through the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the new covenant God makes with us through Christ doesn't remove the necessity of obedience. To the contrary, it it summons us, it charges us. Remember I said God's promises, they make a claim on us to express our faith in Christ and his perfect obedience through our imperfect obedience. With what? The joyful confidence that because of his perfect obedience, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. But we express our faith in his perfect obedience through our own obedience of faith. And that's not a faith that's separated from obedience. Rather, it's a faith in Jesus Christ that we express in him and in his perfect obedience alone through our imperfect obedience. Don't mix that up. God's covenant promises, they they define our identity. They demand our obedience. And finally, we'll end with this very briefly. God's covenant promises display his power. They define something, they demand something, and they display something. What's that? His power. Look at verse 15, chapter 17. The Lord finally tells Abraham here, if you have, haven't noticed already, after three chapters of working in his life, exactly how he's going to give him this offspring. And he's not going to do it through Hagar. He's going to do it through Abraham's wife, Sarah, whom he renamed Sarah. And he says, verse 16, look there. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. You mean her? (laughs) No, I mean her. What's her name, Abram? Sarah. Yeah, I'm talking about her. (laughs) You're kidding. Where's the camera? 
This is a joke. He laughs. He laughs because he's incredulous. He laughs because he thinks it's impossible. He laughs because he doubts the power of El Shaddai. God Almighty. Verse 17. Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Every human weakness on earth cries out with the same question. Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? I mean, God, I've been around the block a few times and uh, I'd like to give you a piece of advice. Let's do this through Ishmael. No, pal. No. Sarah, verse 19, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name. He laughs. God, that was brilliant. Why? Because every time in the future that Abraham called his son Isaac, Isaac, it would remind him of two things that always go hand in hand the weakness of his unbelief, and the overwhelming joy of the power of God. Same time. And a power that met his weakness, that didn't eliminate his weakness, but didn't let it triumph in his life. He laughs. And friend, that's been God's way from the very beginning. He wants to make you laugh. Not a laugh of unbelief, but a laugh of joy of amazement at the power of God to bring to pass the promises of God in a way that only God can do. Now, in saying that, let's not lose sight of the necessity of our obedience, right? So the end of Genesis 17 details Abraham's immediate and total obedience. It challenges us to follow his example. But the promise of Isaac the eventual birth of Isaac a year later reminded Abraham and reminds us that while God's program of covenant blessing requires our obedience, the fulfillment of his covenant isn't ultimately a testimony to our power. It's a testimony to his. And when Abraham tried to fulfill God's covenant by going rogue with Hagar, how'd that work out? God refused to play along. Why, did, why not? Why not? Because that's not the way the Lord works. It's not who he is. He didn't play along with Abraham because God doesn't accomplish his work in our lives in a way that displays our power, right? God accomplishes his work in our lives and in your life in a way that displays his power. That's how he works in the world. He works in our lives in a way that displays his power. And I love how Gentry and Wellam, two professors of mine, once captured this point. Listen to this. Not until Abraham has tried everything in his own strength and is completely powerless will he know God as El Shaddai. That's right, isn't it? I think some of you probably feel like Abraham right now. You feel weak. You feel powerless. You feel utterly incapable of bringing the promises of God to pass in your life. And, And you're starting to wonder if you're honest. Maybe you've told nobody this, but let's be honest. You're wondering if maybe you need to settle for plan B. Maybe you should just accept the fact that that your marriage will always be mediocre or your love for God will always be cold or your desire for God's word will never be strong. You'll never be and do what 
what all those other Christians around you seem to so effortlessly be into. And friend, if that's your heart, take heart in this. With this, I'll conclude. God's covenant promises have never been designed to display your power. It's so true. It's true if you're a pastor. God fulfills his covenant promises in a way that displays his power. He doesn't want to make you powerful. He wants to teach you to trust him. He wants you to depend on him. He wants wants to get you to the point where you're convinced, like Abraham was convinced, that you're completely dependent on the supernatural power of God to bring all of his promises to pass in and through your life. And he wants to fill you right now with the power of his Holy Spirit, with, with new faith to believe that it's in his time, in his way, and by his power that he is going to fulfill all of the promises that he has made you in and through Christ Jesus. Not outside your obedience, but through your obedience. Empowered by him. It won't ultimately happen though because you are faithful but you must remain faithful. It will be because Christ Jesus is faithful and will not fail to keep you faithful to the end. Hear that. When I fear my faith will fail, what? Christ will hold me fast. So may the Lord circumcise your heart this morning. And give you faith to trust him, faith to obey him, immediately and completely, even in little ways that seem insignificant on Monday morning, but over the long haul, determine whether or not you're following Jesus Christ. Because only those who keep God's covenant will experience God's blessings. His covenant promises aren't passive, they're active. They they define our identity. They demand our obedience, they display his power, and they do all of that because he's God Almighty. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is one of those mountaintop passages in your word, but we thank you for how it anchors our soul in really helpful, big ways. Thank you, Jesus, that in you, In your promises to us, we have a new identity. Thank you, Jesus, that in you, the demand of obedience is both perfectly fulfilled and newly empowered in our own lives. And thank you, Jesus, that you do all these things in a way that shows the world just how great you are. I pray you'd forgive us for where we have tried to follow you in our own strength and that you would empower us to obey you because we want to experience your blessings. But more than that, Lord, we want you to be glorified in our life. And we thank you, Father, that it is as we experience your blessings, chief among them, intimacy with you, that you are glorified through our life. Circumcise our hearts, Help us to keep covenant with our eyes on Christ who keeps it perfectly. Amen.